You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. My guest today is Jory Post. He's been an educator and writer for 40 years, as well as making handmade books and journals with his wife. His fiction and poetry have been published in Catamaran Literary Review, Chicago Quarterly Review, Porter Gulch Review, Red Wheelbarrow, 82 Review, and Upcoming in the Sun. He is the co-founder and editor of Frenzy, an online literary magazine in Santa Cruz. Thank you for joining me, Jory. My pleasure, Rick. Thanks so much for having me. This is a wonderful book of poetry, and, and as I read it, I thought it's as if some you wrote a beautiful autobiography and then put it into the same kind of compressor that turns coal into diamonds, and what we have here are, are some amazingly beautiful pieces of prose. But I want to, before we talk about that, I want to talk a little bit about your work as a printer, because it seems to me that as a printer, especially given the kinds of printings you made, which were really beautifully pieces that served up words, not just images, but words, I'd like you to talk about how that changed your relationship to language by virtue of putting language in a frame. Well, printing has been fairly new to me. Um, my wife and I both retired seven, eight years ago, and we decided we wanted to find something to do that we could do together and felt rewarding and was artistic and went along with other things in our lives. My wife is, um, in addition to being a retired nurse, was a seamstress, so that was her art. And in addition to teaching, uh, I have always been writing uh, made handmade books with my students as far back as 1979 in my classroom. Not nearly what we do now, but um, that's what started it all. About six, five, six years ago, I went online and started looking for presses. And um, Gary Young has been a longtime friend, and he's the master, one of the master printers in Santa Cruz. So I was always inspired by him and his work. I found this press in Rising Sun, Indiana, and it was being rebuilt. It was a 1933 Vandercook press that once it arrived, funny story, it got lost in Arizona. Um, this 1,200-pound machine got lost for a few days. And nobody could find it. Eventually showed up in our uh, driveway and um, had to hire somebody to take it around the backyard and put it into our workshop. Um, Gary came over and showed me how to use it. Uh, I took some lessons from um, San Francisco Center of the Book, and away we went, um, creating broadsides for local poets. Um, I think the first piece might have been for Stephen Kessler, one of his pieces. Um, Kim Adonisio, Patrice Vecchioni, um, then the last one we just did, uh, and it's the last one because I don't have muscles in my body anymore, <laughs> given uh, this thing that uh, attacked me. So I really don't have the strength to, to crank 
the handle anymore. So the last one we did was uh, for my friend Joe Stroud for one of his poems called Flowers. Um, so it was nice to end on that note. And then I turned around and sold the press to Gary Young and Cal Press and UCSC. So um, it's where it should be now. Um, but yes, that combination of words with paper and printing. Um, I mean, I, I look at uh, other people who did that, William James and you know, other people throughout history who combi combined words with art. And I've always loved it. I've never been that good at it on the art side. In the past five, six years, my wife and I have been doing open studios where we create handmade journals, handmade books. And in, this, in the past year and a half, I've always loved Joseph Cornell's work. So in the past year and a half, I've been building boxes, collage, trying to get into assemblage as well, and um, have absolutely loved that work. So now replacing the press with box making, I have this workshop full of boxes and pieces and um, ephemera, just a whole room. We used to call our laundry room the laundry room. Um, it still has a washer and dryer, but now we call it the ephemera room because it's full of books and paper and things. <laughs> things like Joseph Cornell would have walked the streets of New York City looking for and finding. You know, it strikes me that you express, I think, one of the critical aspects of any kind of creative spirit or personality, which is you like to do it. It's fun. It's important that it be fun for you. So, so maybe talk a little bit about fun. Yeah, um, it's a mix of fun and addiction. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is an addiction that can be fun, and that is fun. Um, the addiction part means getting up early on a Saturday morning and making sure we get to the flea market by about 8.30, um, spending about an hour or so there going through the aisles and I take this very large photography backpack with me and just load it up with stuff. Um, sometimes ephemera, sometimes brass. Um, in our front yard we have this large fence and we have what we call the brass succulent garden. So we've been buying old <laughs> trumpets and uh, whatever we can find and putting them up and uh, planting succulents in them. So. The flea market's the, the first thing. Then we go over to Silver Spur and have breakfast, which hopefully we'll be able to do a little bit longer until she sells it. And then we go over and are waiting outside of Grey Bears at 10 in the morning to go in there and look for the next set of treasures. So there's an addiction for me in the hunt and gather process, which I actually named one of my short stories, Hunt and Gather, to kind of go along with it because the main character does that as well. He goes to flea markets and uh, hunts. But we'll go to Atelier's Antique Store at least once a week down into Soquel to hit the, the Quonset Hut down there and Center Street Antiques and anywhere and everywhere we can find things. Um, it, we've got a joke running which is that we have a two-story house, and we're thinking we're going to need to build a third story to take care of all of the junk that I find and bring home. That sounds unfortunately familiar yeah. to me. <laughs> now, um, your book's called The Extra Year, and you are making reference to something that 
that has got a hold of you. And I think it it's important to discuss this. And I think the best way to at least begin talking about it is to read the first uh, piece in, in the book called sure. Cold. Very good. And I can tell you a little bit about, um, well, it's obvious what the title refers to, but there were a couple of things that made it happen. The first poem in the first book, second year is done, the second book is done, by the way, but I'm hunting for uh, a publisher now. But the first poem in the extra year is called Cold. It turned cold early this year. A freeze that occupies my nose slashes through my heart on the way to swollen ankles and numb toes. Karen puts electric blankets on the bed, my writing chair, buys Duraflame logs by the trunk load. She is my heat, brings warm breasts to rub this morning as I sit in our foot-of-the-bed writing studio. The shock of my iced hands on her skin causes a scream, a jump away from me. I wonder if I affect everyone this way. Do they see small icicles dangling from my eyebrows? Does the oncologist remain aloof because my nostrils shoot frigid streams of air? Has the large malignant tumor in my pancreas stolen my body temperature to encase itself in ice, refusing to allow a CT scan to show any reduction in size or vascular complication? There's so much I don't know about temperature, surviving a long winter, keeping the people around me warm and happy. It's so wonderful. I, I for me, one of the things that I like about your your work is that it, it, you manage to capture, I think, two opposites in it at the same time. It, there's almost a sense of of humor or, or generosity. I think it's you know blurring in the quantum space between those two terms, and, and it's um, set off against the precision of your language. What made you decide to start writing in this format? The, these are all single paragraphs. It's a really interesting way because you manage to tell a complete story in one paragraph, and that's not easy, and it's a complicated story as well. Yeah, I think there's a few different factors. Um, I've always loved to write, and I've never thought of myself as being a very good writer, um, a decent writer. I've been in writers groups for 25, 30 years. Um, I've gone to conferences and retreats. One. One that I went to was at uh, Tamanis Bay that Pam Houston um, ran, actually still runs under another name. Um, and I took a class from Benjamin Percy. I interviewed him. He's, a, he's a prose writer, right? Oh, yeah. He writes... Yeah, uh, he wrote a fan... writes that kind of supernatural Stephen King-style yes. stuff. I've, I loved his books. He's he's a fun guy, too. And he's got the voice to go with it. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, but the class I took from him was a short fiction writing class. And he was a great teacher. He, um, But he had... I, prob I still have 10 pages of notes from that workshop with him that is in my computer in front of me. I could get to in three seconds if I wanted to. Um, but he made the statement, and I think I've said this before, um, that what I'm going to say to you is very simple, 
but it drives everything. Writing is all about the thing and the other thing. So that that just really set well with me. And, you know, it's about subtext. It's about mm-hmm. as a writer, whether you're a poet or a fiction writer or a playwriter, um, you are required to attend to the world, attend to what's going on. And if I'm looking out the, into the backyard to three rabbits who are on the lawn, which I did and which I wrote a poem about, um, that's the thing. That's the thing I'm seeing. That's what I'm looking at. But now what's the other thing? What What is it that this says to me? What does it say about the cultural universals in the world that we really should be attending to? It's not all about us, even though we sometimes fall into that trap. It's about all about everybody. So in that rabbit poem, I'm talking about, I call them bunnies in the beginning. And by the end, I say, no, let's call them rabbits because they're going to end up in the Sunday gravy. So that's the last line. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that guides my way of thinking as to how I'm writing these days. The other things, one is Gary Young. Um, Gary's a friend. I've always loved his poetry. Most of his poetry is prose poetry the last 10 or so years. Um, and I know you want me to read my poetry, but I'm going to read one very short one of his because it's my... I was going to ask you to read one by him. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Because this is my, I think, almost my favorite poem on the planet. Because he does this thing and the other thing. No titles. So Gary doesn't use titles anymore. I started with no titles. The first 50 poems I wrote, I did not use titles. I tried to follow in the footsteps of Gary and his friend Killarney Clary, who don't use titles. And Charles Simic um, also didn't use titles. His his book that he won the um, Pulitzer Prize for, he didn't use titles. So this has no title. This is Gary's Young's poem. Two girls were struck by lightning at the harbor mouth. An orange flame lifted them up and laid them down again. Their thin suits had been melted away. It's a miracle they survived. It's a miracle they were ever born at all. So, Jory uh, Post reading Gary Young. Wow. Yeah. I can see why. I could do that for the rest of my life. Just that poem I could read for the rest of my life. I'm going to take a minute to say you're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, K Squid 90.7 FM. We're streaming online at ksqd.org. The show is Narrative Species. I'm your host, Rick Clevel. I'm speaking with poet Jory Post. Jory. Cole does a, a, a wonderful job, I think, of somebody who who is just picks up your book in the store. It's a great way to read that first poem and, and get to know what the other thing is, in a sense, in this book for, for you. And, and I think that you do a really good job of discussing, um, putting, I guess, a sense... Uh, as I say, almost as not quite a sense of humor, but you get there. You, you. so um, in that poem, talk about um, just that. For me, the the story that you tell in that poem is is very complicated. There's a lot of stuff that happens in one paragraph more than happens in many, you know, a novel. 
So talk about your editing process or, or your focal process. I, I'm not sure what is what is the right term. I'm not sure either. As far as editing, I have not historically been a great editor. Mm-hmm. I have not been a strong reviser. Uh, knowing you're a strong writer, that I mean, that me to me that just makes me think that you're doing your writing kind of you're revising as you write. Yes, I think that's correct. I was just listening to Joyce Carol Oates mm-hmm. um, on her master class, and uh, she was asked, um, is always asked, how many times she revises the piece, and she said, I, I can't count it because it, it's probably 200 times, because every time I open a piece, I go back to the beginning, and I'm rewriting paragraph after paragraph all the way through, so I never stop editing until it finally gets published. So um, for me, that's been different. Um, A friend of mine, okay, I'll drop his name, John Franzen, um, comes over sometimes and visits, and he reviewed one of my pieces that got published this year, and he said, you're prolific, we know that much, and you're a pretty good writer. He said, now I want you to take a day of that time, eight hours, and work on one page and rewrite it and make sure every word is perfect and that every word fits, that every sentence is what you want to say to move it forward to the next place. That's really stayed with me and I've tried to become a better reviser and spend more time on that process than the um, sheer numbers, although I haven't been succeeding very well at that because I started a new novel on November 14th, and I'm as of today, I'm at 54,000 words. So the prolificality is still there. But I do go back every day and I'm changing things. It's funny. I read it to my wife or I read it to Kathy Chetkovich. And as I'm reading, I'm redlining or blue lining and saying, oh, wait a minute, that tense is off. And so I'm getting better at the revision process. It's. I think that's the most profound change that's come to writing in in centuries is the ability to revise on a computer before you finish something and, and to to get right into the middle and change words and I, the the change in terms of writing that seems to me is cannot be understated i absolutely agree i bought uh, the first apple computer in 1981 brought it into my classroom got bank street writer software taught my kids how to use bank street writer word processing in 1981 wow they're like you smoky kids so i absolutely agree that the computer has changed the world sometimes some things for the bad Mm -hmm. depending upon which company you want to talk about but uh, mostly for the good for um, the sake of writing writers. Um, when you put together a collection like this, this is your first collection of, of poems, how many did you have to choose from at that point in time? Uh, okay, so this backs us up to when I got diagnosed in October 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, I was writing other things in short stories. And once I joined the medical world almost daily, um, things changed. Uh, I wasn't writing in the beginning. I wasn't totally pessimistic and down and depressed. I'm pragmatic, so I know what to expect with pancreatic cancer, but I'm also 
mostly positive, and I wanted to stay positive for myself, for my wife, for my friends. So I started chemo, and it was this drug called Fulfirinox that they use for pancreatic and colorectal. Didn't touch my hair, didn't touch my beard, didn't do hardly anything to me side effect-wise. So when we came around to February to take a CAT scan to look at the tumor again, Good news was I was the poster child. However, the bad news was it also didn't affect the tumor. Uh, my my cancer marker numbers shot way up off the chart crazy, and they decided to switch me to a different set of chemo drugs, which took my hair, took my beard, hit me harder, and apparently worked on the tumor a little better because um, the cancer marker numbers started to go down. So that was February. I got a little depressed in the, the switch from one drug to another and the fact that my numbers had shot so high. A friend of mine, actually a friend that you know as well, we won't say her naming, but we were at the, her solstice party uh, <laughs> a little while ago, told me about an opening in her poetry workshop with local poet laureate Danusha Lamaris. So I said to myself in that down little moment, okay, let's get out of this funk and let's pretend like I can live for this eight-week session. So I signed up and wrote my first prose poem on February 24th. So back to your question about how many did I have to choose from for this 70-poem book, my first goal was 50 poems, which, you know, is stupidly huge for it's most a lot. poems. Yeah. Um, but I got there in a hurry. Part of that had to do with being uh, chemically induced by um, Abraxane and Gemzar, which were the, uh, the killer uh, chemo drugs, along with Decadron, which was the steroid to go with it to m make your body accept it better. The Decadron would wake me up or keep me up all night long. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, I would jump into my chair, my fingers on the keyboard, and write poems. Sometimes I was writing three to four a day back then. So when it got time to publish, I probably... I learned about a woman named Jennifer K. Sweeney, whose husband is Chad Sweeney. He did a reading here locally, and I learned that about that she was also a poet and a manuscript critiquer. I said, give me her email address. Next day she got back to me and said, I'd love to work with you. And I sent her, I looked at her website and she says she normally takes 68, up to 68 poems. I sent her 109. <laughs> so there was, there, that was my first number was 109 and she sent me back 70 and ordered them and told me where to send them and uh, what to change. She was phenomenal. Wow, that's that's great. I mean, it, it's so important to find somebody who edits you with sympathy and understanding and also rigor. Yes. And to go along with that, I also had, well, my wife hears everything in the morning, so I mm -hmm. get feedback from her. But then Kathy Chetkovich comes over and visits and has heard every poem I've ever written. Um, and she gives me feedback on the fly, and she actually copy edits my manuscripts. Oh, wow. That's So I'm just in heaven with the people around me. Um, I want to read a poem about a person around me sometime soon, but I still want to address your question. So that was 109 to begin with for the first book. Well, I finished the second book um, a 
couple of weeks ago and have been submitting it. My goal for this year, after I realized how quickly I could get to 50, was to hit 300 by New Year's Eve, which I did. I hit. I wrote the 300th poem um, on the afternoon of December 31st. Boy, that's really great. That that's so interesting and powerful and fun too. I mean, it's great to when you set that kind of goal, kind of seemingly crazy goal for yourself. It's like I'm gonna go for it, and then when you actually get it, what what a joy! Huge fun. Um, it's not all good. I mean, when you're writing 300 poems no, in, in about 300 days, uh, because partly because I don't go back and revise a lot. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I'm in this wonderful poetry workshop with Danusha Lamiris, who has been a saint for me, um, and eight, seven other writers or poets in that group who give me wonderful feedback every Tuesday at Danusha's workshop. Um, without them, it, this book wouldn't have been uh, what it is. So I'm very thankful to them for the honest feedback that I get. Now you mentioned a poem you wanted to read. Oh yeah, um, related to partly to the success I think I've had. Um, two kinds of success, one in getting a book of poetry published this late in my life. Um, I never thought it would be a book of poetry that I published first. Um, and second, that I'm still alive. The surgeon at Stanford in October said, uh, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to operate and get that tumor out of there because it's wrapped around an artery. And I said, well, then how long do I have? Because I didn't know if it was uh, a week or a month or whatever. And he said, you know, up to 14 months. Well, that was two months ago. And, you know, I still have good energy. Um, the tumor has not shrunk. Um, but um, here's why I'm still around and as healthy as I am. The poem's titled Karen, My Wife. I'm not sure if Karen's sainthood will be enacted before or after I'm gone. She's a lapsed Catholic, so that might have influence on the selection committee. A good pope won't care. We'll focus on the merits of her case. The biggest hurdle will be that she's still alive, will become the first living saint. While the Pope will be looking for two miracles, he will have to wade through her many. She cooks steel cutouts for me with sliced bananas and walnuts with a separate bowl of brown sugar. She makes me poached eggs on toasted English muffins. She hunts through the fridge to make sure she doesn't feed me anything past the expiration dates. She walks Pepper to the corner three times a day, filling perfumed poop sacks. She doodles in her journal every morning. She listens to more audible books than anyone on the planet. She waves at every neighbor when we come and go. That I am still alive is her biggest miracle. She has pushed my expiration well beyond its use-by date. Wow. <laughs> Uh, that that's pretty much what what I said as I read that book seventy or so times maybe more. Uh, I think that uh, for me, one of the interesting aspects of this book was to, as I thought of it, in although it's not a work of fiction, I looked at it and kind of organized it and thought about it as a work of fiction, just in terms of the structure and, and the way you give us plot. In, in a paragraph, you give us uh, this incredible, this, it, there you go, in your last paragraph, that's like 
three or four chapters in a novel about two people and the setting up the two characters, you do it so economically. Uh, when you, so these just trip off your pen at that length or do you like write something longer and, and take out, start uh, excising the, the unnecessary words? If you looked at all 300 poems side by side or hung them up on a wire like James Houston used to do when he was writing up in his cupola over there by the beach by Twin Lakes, um, you would notice that most of them are of a similar length, maybe 120-ish words. I've never really counted, but they're similar. Now, I have this one poem called What Else um, that is takes 11 minutes to read. So I think it's maybe 1,500 words. Um, Danusha gave me a copy of a poem by B.H. Fairchild called Beauty, and it was a long poem. And I loved it, and I loved the structure and the format, so I wrote one called What Else? And uh, that was radically different than anything I'd ever written. I have had the idea lately that, all right, maybe it's a little boring that I'm writing them all the same size and length, so I've done a few experiments lately. You know, um, for me, I, I think that the... Uh the similarity of them gives it gives the entire work a rhythm, which is really nice. There's the rhythm that's in the language of each poem you write, and I think the the rhythms you do and the rhymes and stuff work out really, really well. Do you plan this? Uh, do you think, oh, here's a here's a word I want to rhyme it, or uh, I'm just curious about you know how the language arrives, gets out of your brain and into the Pen? Computer? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it kind of depends upon my intent. <clears throat> so, for example, uh, three nights ago, no, maybe a little longer than that. Um, no, it was Monday night. Um, I woke up at two, and I had four words in my head. I, I hadn't gone to sleep thinking about anything um, except the Jeopardy tournament that was coming up. <laughs> and so one of the words was instruction. Mm -hmm. One of the words was construction. One of the words was obstruction. One of the words was destruction. So I laid there for about an hour trying to think of other struction words, and I couldn't come up with any. And when I got up in the morning, and so I had a little bit of intent in my head. I wanted to write something with those four words that had to do with structure and instruction. And I did a search on structure and I found substruction. It was the only other word I could find. I didn't like substruction because I'd never heard it or used it before. I was thinking of abstraction. Oh, abstraction. That'd it's be not a real word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it makes make sense. It so I wrote a. a radically different poem that had uh, seven pieces to it. It had a prelude, an, an obstruction, a destruction, a construction, a substruction, and an envoy, E-N-V-O-I, mm -hmm. which I had never heard of before, but I didn't want to use epilogue. Um, and then I used Web Merriam-Webster definitions first before I then wrote a three-line um, poem for each one. 
<clears throat> so it's radically different, and I read it to my uh, workshop on Tuesday. So that was kind of fun to try something new and different. Do you want to read it now? Oh, gosh. Do you nah, have let's not do that one because, yeah. well, you'd actually have to play a part and read the, um, the definition part. <laughs> And I'd have to dig it out of my computer. There's, there's the, there's the, the rub. Uh, well, why don't you pick a poem? You had some poems that you wanted to read from your new collection. Oh, from and, the new collection. Okay, let's see. And, and while you do that, I'll remind people you're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, K Squid ninety point seven FM, streaming online at ksqd.org. This show is Narrative Species. Uh, my guest is Jory Post. He's a poet. I'm your host, Rick Clevel. Joy's selecting a piece from his new collection that he just finished recently. Trying to, f oh, page 60, there we go. Um, this is one I just wrote a few days ago, which I also read to uh, my workshop on, oh, that's not it. Maybe I'm lying. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna do a different one instead until I can find it. Well, I'll read one that's kind of fun. As I mentioned, I'm a Joseph Cornell fan of his work, not necessarily his life, which mm -hmm. was pretty different. This one's called Joe. Cornell was a hoarder. So am I. He was highly organized with his labeled boxes. Mine are taking over every room in the house. He built boxes and collage at night after work on the kitchen table after caring for his ill brother. I work on the kitchen table and every other table whenever I feel like it, when the nausea and fatigue don't pull me under, while others take care of me. Early reviewers called his work Toys for Adults. I'd be thrilled for any reviewer to call it what they want. He was a virgin until his 60s. I started at 16. It appears stifled sex leads to productivity of a different sort. As my body weakens, I understand. How dare I compare myself to him? How dare I call him by his first name as if we were lovers? Wow. That's really amazing, Joy. You really have a have a fantastic uh, sense of what I would call story, and story and narrative are not necessarily, and events are not necessarily a, a part of poetry. Or I mean, they're not. You don't think of them as as, as being a part. Of, but I think that in your work, they really are. So, um, what do you? comprises a story and what is something that you want to say to somebody to you know to, to put down to paper what is that narrative that that's hanging out there in space somewhere waiting to coalesce huh. again Joyce Carol Oates <laughs> talking to me in her master class a couple days ago said don't get stuck on where and when you're writing. Write when you're not feeling well. Write at 2 o'clock in the morning. Write at different places. So um, that's one thing that I've been trying to do lately. Like, if I had gotten here a little bit earlier, I might have written out in your lobby. Um, 
I think I drifted away from the intent of your question there, which was uh, about narrative and story. Because I think you're. Every one of your poems tells a story, and sometimes they're abstract, but you walk away with the same feeling that I walk away with when I read a a really good short story, which is not the same thing as a novel. Yeah. I'm always hoping to get to that other thing Mm -hmm. by the last word, Mm -hmm. by the last line. Um, Now, sometimes I think I go too far. I think I tell too much of the story because my Jennifer Sweeney, who has now... um, edited both books, a lot of her feedback is, stop here, chop that sentence off. I don't need to know that. I already know that. Mm. Um, so she's very helpful at saying, don't go that far. You've, you've already told enough of the story. Don't tell too much of it. Right, because part of the joy for the reader is putting it together, is finding uh, the mystery of what exactly, to me in many ways, mystery is the ultimate definition of of how we experience literature and reading because the idea is you want to find out something. Absolutely. You want to get to there. You want to know what to see, what what the clue is, who the murderer is, or what's happening here. Why are we reading this? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, related to that, this novel that I'm writing. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. um, It's called Anew, A-N-E-W, which is fitting in my life right now because everything every day is anew. Um, I, I, I got myself an office downtown um, across from Lens Arts. I went on Craigslist, I went in and I checked it out and it was uh, the person who was subletting it said, well, it's month to month. And I said, oh, that's perfect. So am I. <laughs> so um, I wrote the check and um, decided to go in there and sit down and drive away from my house to force myself to go sit in this office and write on this new project. I didn't know what it was going to be. I wrote a novel last summer before he was sick, and I actually thought I was going to be working on that in in rewriting it. It was a novel about death and dying and the life leading up to it, and I was diagnosed about a month or so later, and I realized that me as character wasn't in it. There wasn't a pancreatic cancer patient in this death and dying story, so I had to go back and try to give my cancer to one of the the characters that was kind of flat. Um, She's disappeared, though. I wrote about 10,000 words in that vein, but she's on a train somewhere in Canada, and I can't find her. So I started this new novel. I sat down in front of the computer, had no idea what to write. I'm looking out the window at uh, the Lynn's Art sign of my office, and I wrote, she really needed this office. So that was my beginning. I had nowhere, no idea where I was going, but that it took off from there. You know, it's interesting. There are obviously, I'm sure you know that there are some writers who are will you know outline their book from beginning to end which to me would be to like put a thousand stakes into its heart and assure ensure that that the actual book never got written <laughs> i absolutely agree there you know there's that continuum of writers mm-hmm. who sometimes there are those that outline everything and there are those that outline nothing like um john irving writes the last sentence mm-hmm. of every novel first right and then works his way the end. 
<laughs> yeah, I, that's that. I, for me, I, at least, I think the, the the books that I enjoy are books that where the writer had to figure out something, and I think that's really an important for me. A part of the process that I recognize in the reading when the writer does something that says, "Wow, I never thought I'd do that before." Yeah. So um, the novel is full of mystery mm. that you had talked about the mysteriousness it is full of um things that the reader even the writer don't know the answers to yet and there are locked safes and there is a workshop with a lock on it and there is a computer with nested folders buried deeply there's um the ability of alexa amazon echoes and dots to be able to record your voice if you tell it to. For example, if you say Alexa, new list, and um, a list comes, you can add things to the list. So one of the things that's buried in this novel, I shouldn't be telling everybody this, is um, uh, there is stuff buried in Alexa that this guy who's died has left there that nobody's found yet. But related to that um, mysteriousness, I found that poem that I couldn't find a minute ago, so I'm going to read that one. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's called Virtue. All right. And as I read it to my uh, workshop on Tuesday, and they said, oh, another puzzle. So this is definitely a puzzle. And I think I, it was recommended that I give one more clue in the writing of it, in the revision of it, so we'll see. It's called Virtue. Collective and individual greatness stored in the skins of vegetables. Moral excellence hidden away in plain sight, squandered in the creation of casseroles and stews. Talked about by chefs and guests as if it mattered, as if love and death and courtship and what stirs beneath petticoats and cummerbunds could tilt the earth's axis, change the direction of thought. It goes unnoticed, lost in the confusion of tender moments crossed with social decorum, until the observer pays attention, until the watcher watches, sees the sharpened knife exact surgery, remove protective masks from turnips, lay potatoes bare next to pared carrots. A pocket full of stones, the final flavoring, where taste disappears, where virtue and sin find their balance in the boil. Wow. <laughs> That's great. That is like a little, it, it reminds me of something called a cabinet of curiosities. Oh, yes. That the uh, Victorians used to keep where they put in pseudo-scientific and scientific objects and say, hmm. Isn't this curious? Great. <laughs> and and that, that has that feel to it of like little pockets where you're putting different things and there, there's a theme to it that yeah. that is like you you know it's there, you know it's real, it's one theme, it's a uniting force, but it's just just beyond your grasp. And as a writer, I do you could you talk about that kind of uh, putting things that are there for the reader that they can use immediately within the context of the poem and the story you're telling, etc. And at the same time, having you know those things be stand-ins for the other thing, and bringing those two in focus together in a poem—that sounds like actually rather fun. I, I really love it when I succeed. I don't always succeed, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm. 
I'm told so by my um, fellow poets in the workshop and by um, Jennifer Sweeney and uh, Kath, Catherine, Kathy Chekovich. Um, so yeah, it is fun to to get there. And that's the part where I think, I don't know if revision is the right way to think about it, but when I'm writing, slowing down enough to say, okay, where where should this really land? Mm. Because it can land with too much sentiment, which isn't the other thing, uh, for me anyway, usually. So I think that has to do with revising on the fly, revising as I write. Actually, what I do, um, and I'm going to turn this around so you can see it, is I keep a journal. My journal this year was 392 pages long. Mm -hmm. So in the journal, I have a little light bulb. Oh. And I, I track light bulbs, which are gems or glimmers, things that could become a poem. And then when I'm ready to turn them into a poem, I have a different icon that I use to write the poem. Wow. Now, so you can just search through through your file for, for a light bulb, say, I've, I, I need something, and here it is. Exactly. So you, you, you set yourself up. You, you, you fertilize your own ground in advance before you plow. That's right. I, I, um, I absolutely do. For example, I have the warmth is another topic that I want to spend a minute on at some point, but not yet. Um, I have these Patagonia... Um, warm jackets that people have been giving me that have the nice zipper pocket on the front mm -hmm. that are, are the perfect size for these little journals that my wife and I make. So I I write the little um, light bulbs in my journal first uh, before I bring them home. Like um, the other night we were driving home and I hit seven yellow lights. So I handed my book to Karen and said, would you write down the word caution? Yellow lights <laughs> everywhere today. So caution is almost finished as a poem. Oh, wow. How so, nice. So it's just, you know, it's that paying attention thing, which we tend, in most of us, I think, in our normal day-to-day -day living conditions, forget or don't care about paying attention to all the little details. That's what put the that, that's your job. You're the poet. That's, you pay attention to the details right. for us, and that's what makes your poetry so beautiful and powerful and immediate. And that's what makes makes it poetry as opposed to prose. I think because we can see the deliberation in your language, and we can feel the rhyme sometimes. But that's not and that's not what the, it's the deliberation of the language that you have actually slowed yourself down. Uh, it's like uh, in the Matrix, <laughs> where he slows down and everything. You see the bullets with that are normally whizzing by, but he's paying attention, and that's kind of what you do. You just pay attention to the bullets of life. Yeah, and as every one of us sh should be doing every day of our lives, uh, but we tend not to. One of the things I have talked about is that every time I go to a memorial for a friend. Um, I say to myself, I need to change my life today, now. And then a week goes by, and then a month goes by, and I'll forget. I think we tend to forget. Mm -hmm. When um, you're diagnosed with something like what I have, um, there's no forgetting. 
Mm. Um, it's there all the time. I mean, I, I feel things in my body every day, so I know it's there. And uh, it has shortened my time frame on the planet. So the amount of time I have to get things done is in a shrunk time frame. So I've tended to expand my vertical to... Um, to counteract that shortened horizontal and fill my time as much as I can you with know, writing. It, that's really interesting because I think as humans, one of the aspects of physics and reality that we do not understand is time and how we perceive it to pass slowly or quickly. And I think what you're talking about is a deliberate uh, effort and a successful effort to change the way you experience time itself, to give yourself the ability to take notes, essentially. Exactly. <laughs> Most of us don't have time to take notes because we're just rushing from A to B, and, and we barely even think about A to B, let alone what's in between them. You are going there one notch at a time. It's, uh, oh, uh, he gets halfway there. It's a... Uh, uh, the 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 man who who is going from A to B, but and so in order to get from A to B, you go from A to halfway to B, and then you go halfway again, halfway again, halfway again. If you proceed thus, you will never get anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Um, I drive down SoCal Drive or Avenue to go home quite often, and there's a skateboard shop there over by Staff of Life, and there's a lot of graffiti painted on the the back wall. And the one that stands out that's been there forever says, time is too short. Every time I drive by, I think... I know that, that piece of graffiti of which you speak. Yeah. That's not quite it. it. Time is not short. I don't think short and time fit together well. Time is different than that. Time is in a different category altogether. So I, I often think about that. It's of alternating density. It's a variable density. Very good. I think that maybe mm -hmm. sometimes you travel through it, it's like liquid, like traveling through caro syrup. You can't get anywhere, but you're getting a good view of everywhere around yeah. you, whether you want to or not. Yeah. And I, I think, um, when would you read another poem? Yeah. Let's see. This is one that um, is for Lance. If I had a cemetery for Lance, I'd carve totem poles in place of headstones. They'd tell whole stories better than inscriptions. They'd be the right height, five to six feet for men and women, 21 inches for babies. I'd hand paint them crushed strawberries for red, melted chocolate truffles for brown, the skin of eggplants for purple. I'd cluster poets together on the knoll behind the barn, give them a view of the canyon, a slight peak of the bay, just enough to prompt them. The artists would inhabit the garden, make salads, paint still lifes. Musicians would be scattered among the trees, cellos with birch, Violins with weeping willows, brass screaming at eucalyptus to go home. If I had a cemetery, I'd be selective. Use three questions. Did you dance? Did you have fun? Were you surprised? I'd have a lawn, a fountain, a cupola, 
but no parking lot. No visitors allowed. The dead deserve a peaceful entrance. I'm working on my pole now. Crushed dandelion flowers for my yellowing teeth. A scoop of clouds for the returning gray of my beard. Wow. <laughs> you know, one thing about uh, the, your work is that it's, it's really a pleasure to, to read it. Uh, read it aloud to yourself or, or just read it. And I think that that has to do with the, the structure of prose. Uh, was there a time when you were a, a, a line break guy, I guess? <laughs> oh, good point. Um, and when did you decide to, to, to send them packing? <laughs> I probably, on my computer right in front of me, I probably have maybe 40 poems that were written over a few decades that were line break poems um, and they aren't very good mm. um, I've submitted a few of them a few times and never gotten anything published um, so kind of a little um, sideways from your question is that in my fiction which has always been my main thing mm -hmm. I wanted to work on my dialogue. Uh -huh. So I joined a playwriting group about four years ago. And my sole goal was to improve my dialogue for my fiction. In the meantime, I wrote some fairly decent plays. Um, then when I joined the poetry workshop, the intent was to live for eight weeks and have a reason to do so. But it was also now to take a more lyrical, poetic um, bent on my writing, ideally to bring with me to the fiction. I don't know how well I have ex have done that with uh, my new novel. I try to remember to do that, but I get so locked up into the plot sometimes that I will forget to be lyrical and poetical the way I speak. That's good. That's a different kind of poetry. Yes. It's plot, plot poetry. I mean, the, the pleasure in reading, you know, inspiring plots that, that strike you with surprise or that recast the world for you with surprise is, I think, uh, you know, akin to the pleasure of reading really nice prose that you hear spoke words you might hear spoken every day, but read by you in your arrangement, you just go, "Oh wow, that is just so cool." So, uh, you're working on your um, novel and your your poetry at the same time now. All three still. I, oh. I'm in three writing oh, groups. So you're in the playwriting too. Playwriting on Monday nights and every two weeks on a Sunday with the writing fiction writing group and then Tuesdays with poetry so I'm doing all three things some days I do all three things wow how does it how do you switch gears how do you set yourself up to switch gears you just go okay now it's time to do a poem uh, part of it is wow I haven't written a poem in five days <laughs> it's time um, wow it's Monday morning and my playwright group is at 6 30 I better crank something out. <laughs> yeah, those things do serve that purpose. Yeah. Um, I, productive procrastination is the term that I have used for that. So um, 
The power of procrastination is highly underestimated. Absolutely. It is really, I mean, it's the best, it's it's purposeful sublimation Yeah. in, in your case, yeah. know, or in the case of people who are creative. So right now, um, the novel is at my forefront. I mean, mm -hmm. I've done the 54,000 words in less than two months. My That's goal, a lot, yeah. My goal is to be at uh, 100,000 within the next month, month and a half. Um, and the poems, I just want to have a few a week, keep coming out. My friend Kathy Chetkovich, who I've mentioned a few times, comes over on Sundays, every Sunday, and we have a discussion, and I read new stuff to her. So that's another motivator for me, is to have new stuff so Kathy can hear it. <laughs> I look forward to seeing, hearing new stuff from you for a long time. Can you please read one last poem before we close out today? Sure, let's see. Um... That last one, If I Had a Cemetery, was just published in Unbroken Journal online. Wow. And there's one other that they published as well, which I think I'll read. It's called A Telescopic View. I was told by someone years ago not to write about the moon, that it was overused, a cliché. That was before I started writing poetry. But now, how can I resist? By avoiding the usual metaphors. By not having the rays of moonlight land on rippling waves at midnight. By never having the moon accompany star-struck lovers along a beach walk. By refusing to call the moon an orb, or to watch it dip into the bay. And to never look at it through naked eyes. Use only high-powered telescopes to bring it close, into my living room, my head, my point of view. I see what others never will. It is not green cheese. They have Gouda and Edom and Gruyere, spread out on burgundy picnic blankets, sesame crackers and fresh baguettes, empty and full bottles of Catherine Kennedy 2012 Estate Cabernet Sauvignon. Cork strewn, grapes, red and white checkered napkins soiled with what looks like yellow lipstick, and a telescope pointed at Earth, watching me watch them. Jory Post, thank you for joining me, Jory. What a great conversation. Thanks really so much, it. Rick. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Narrative Species on KSQD Santa Cruz, K-Squid 90.7 FM. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.